We always do something at the beginning in this new year of 2023. We've started opening with a prayer because of the grace we were shown in the latter part of 2022. And, uh, and it seems appropriate anyway. So Chaplain Lee has been healed to some extent and is back with us. He's not running. If I could stand, everyone in this house could stand. Stand all over this room as we welcome in the presence of God tonight. Father, we thank you again tonight for just another opportunity for who you are. We thank you, Lord, for blessing us to make it here tonight. I thank you, Father, for your healing virtue. I thank you, Lord, for healing all of those that are here tonight. God, some of us in our minds, some of us in our physical bodies, but most of all, Lord, we thank you for just healing us. We thank you for delivering us. And now tonight, we ask you to pour out your spirit into the man of God to be able to speak to you, Lord, to speak for you, Lord. We thank you for everyone that is here we ask for your presence to be made known. Continue to let it flow throughout this place. We give you all the praise, the glory, and the honor. We worship you and give you all the honor because the honor is yours. We thank you for what you're about to do tonight as we dive into the first step. Let it be made known to everyone that is here that everything is not done the way it is everywhere else. We do it different here at New Freedom. So we thank you and welcome you to Position of Neutrality. Amen. Amen. Thank you, so, so Chap led you into it. How many of you are here for the very first time? Anybody? Oh, good. A few of you? So first of all, welcome. And second, let us warn you in advance, you're liable to experience us just a little different than other meetings of other fellowships. And the reason that's liable to happen is we intend for you to have a different experience here. So what Chap was warning you about is what we do here. We've been doing for lots of years, but it is perceived different. Um, we just take a look at the instruction for a step or so a week directly out of this book. And we use this book in 12-step recovery. Why? Yeah, the process described by the authors of this book has been proven to work for addicts of the hopeless variety, addicts to alcohol and other substances, yeah? So my role here is simply to try and show you how I find my experience in the book and encourage you to have your experience with the book. Fair enough? So we're going to start with the, the name of the book because as Chap said, we're in step one tonight. And if you go to the title page of the book, a lot of people refer to it as the big book. Some people I hear talking about it as the basic text and they confuse it with N.A.'s book and other things like that. But this book is the original and it's entitled Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. And the title is descriptive, if that makes sense. So they're telling you why the book has remained unchanged all these years because it's not our story, it's their story. And they're telling the story, and it's our job to align our experience with theirs because they've got a promise in one of those chapters that says, rarely have we seen a person fail who? So if everyone adds their spin, pretty soon we don't know what their path was. So we try and show you straight what they had to say and then align our experience with that. Does it make sense? So let's go to the forward to the first edition. That's on page XIII, Roman numeral 13. And they tell us who the we is. How many of you have seen the steps written on the wall and have been told that we're a we program? That's true, we may well be a we program, but we are not the we. And that's important to know because if I'm not getting the experience they got, it's probably because I'm not doing what they did, not that they were wrong. So it says, we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. So they've told us who they are. The storytellers are more than 100 men and women who have recovered, and they're telling the story of several thousands who have recovered. 
Make sense? And then it says to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. They put the precisely how we have recovered in italics. Why do you think they did that? It's really important that we not twist the words, add to, take from it, because it's very precise what they did and what they experienced as a result. And our job is to call to attention when they're starting to have that spirit infusion, but they're too dead in the spirit to know what's happening. The reason they're encountering me is I can call to their attention the life flowing from within them. And I might not have that opportunity if I'm spinning this because of something I made up. Precisely how we have recovered. I try and help people see their story. It's not because I'm a legalist. It's just one of the things you got to learn about revelation is we're not supposed to add to it or take from it. Does it make sense? And this is a story of modern day revelation. Okay. So for them, we hope these pages will prove so convincing that no further authentication will be necessary. So I'm going to show you what happens at some time tonight. You may feel something when you do. I'll know. I'll call it to your attention. Because we teach you to talk to you about the power we call God without giving you a demonstration of the power. Fair enough? All right. So I'm going to jump from there to the doctor's opinion. And tonight I think the... Where I want to start is in the, the very opening section of the doctor's opinion. And we're back to the we. So who's the we? So we're on page XXV, Roman numeral 25. And it says, we of Alcoholics Anonymous believe that the reader will be interested in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in this book. So let's check their thinking. Are any of you interested in the medical estimate of the plan they describe in the book? Yes. How many of you have had medical estimates from other people that was less than effective? Yes. But these guys have proven efficacy. It's scientifically based, right? We have a long history of effectiveness, okay? So it says, convincing testimony must surely come from the medical men who have had experience with the sufferings of our members and have witnessed our return to hell. Why do we have a therapeutic component to our peer program here? Because the therapeutic component's important to help people confront the, the traumas and stresses and anxiety and all the things that have happened. And, and we're never going to be able to accomplish everything as peers to help with that. But what we can do is help at least help them disarm as peers so that they can get maximum benefit from the medical community. Does that make sense? If we do it, you see it here every day. Okay. A well-known doctor, chief physician at a nationally prominent hospital specializing in alcoholic and drug addiction gave Alcoholics Anonymous this letter. So this is the first letter from Dr. William Silkworth and then later they'll get into an expanded text from Dr. William Silkworth. William Silkworth was not an alcoholic, but he was specialized in the treatment of alcoholics and drug addiction clients that were coming to him from World War I. And so they're very common to most of us. They had morphine addictions, they had cocaine addictions, they had alcohol addictions. Sometimes we get the impression we made all that shit up, but no, they had it back then too. So it says, to whom it may concern, I have specialized in the treatment of alcoholism for many years. In late 1934, I attended a patient who, though he had been a competent businessman of good earning capacity, was an alcoholic of a type I had come to regard as hopeless. So one of the leading physicians in the country encountered the author of much of this book and one of our founders in AA, Bill Wilson, and his opinion of Bill Wilson's condition is that Bill Wilson was of the hopeless variety. How many of you have read this book often enough to have concluded that you might be one of those of the hopeless variety? Usually you don't end up in a room with this kind of a step study because you can just, you know, find some other means. <laughs> so we do have an elect group, Sean. 
Okay. So in the course of his third treatment, he acquired, acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery. So Bill Wilson, in the course of his third treatment, had a visitation that gave him some new ideas. How many of you have had some struggles with recovery, like visited and revisited? Is it comforting to know that the author of most of this book similarly had a little trouble in the beginning? Because we can feel diminished when we come here and we struggle, can't we? Okay. As part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conception to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. This has become the basis of a rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their families. This man and over 100 others appear to have recovered. So they're telling you the story from the doctor's viewpoint of Bill's and the co-author's experience, who the, these 100 are that they're talking about in this book, this letter. Does it make sense now? Who, so he's authenticating the experience of these people, many of whom he treated. He says, I personally know scores of cases who were of the type with whom other methods had failed completely. How many of you have had a few methods applied to you? How many of you are unable to count how many? These facts appear to be of extreme medical importance because of the extraordinary possibilities of rapid growth inherent in this group, they may mark a new epoch in the annals of alcoholism. These men may well have a remedy for thousands of such situations. You may rely absolutely on anything they say about themselves. That is the opinion of the doctor. How many of you would have had a hard time getting a letter from a doctor saying that you may rely on anything that man or woman says to you? We would have had a hard time getting that letter, wouldn't we? Medical people are loath to give us much certification or verification, are they not? So something was different. Can you understand? Even in this, he's describing something was very different. How many of you are in the treatment space or have visited a few treatment spaces and recognized how many people struggle? How many people die? But this guy witnessed something so completely different, he's willing to put his name on it all the way into the history. Okay. So now the authors are going to come back into us and talk to us about their opinion of the doctor's opinion, because after all, we're addicts and we always have an opinion. <laughs> Make sense? Okay. So the physician who at our request gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement, which follows. In this statement, he confirms what we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe. What's must mean? Bill, Bill and the authors thought that it was critically important that whoever went through treatment or came in contact with the AAs at that time were told emphatically and then through the process convinced that this physical component isn't nonsense, it's real. Why is that important? How many of you had trouble with the idea that you had an illness? Some people still have trouble with that idea, right? Okay. The body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. It did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we're in full flight from reality, or we're outright mental defectives. Does it satisfy you to be told that? Did it fit sometimes? Well, they're going to say that these things were true to some extent, in fact, to a considerable extent with some of us, but we're sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholics which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. We often leave it out. So tonight we're going to take a look at that and see if we can make sense of it so that everyone can start at the same place because the first step is where we start, and the first step isn't the one they say on the wall, right? What is the first step in recovery? From page 30, we learned we had to fully concede to our innermost selves. Can't do that based on a lie. That's a, that's a surrender to the power within. 
So it's not an act because it's, it's the beginning of a changed nature, right? So we got to get the right facts in front of everybody. All right, so the doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us. Any of you interested by that or did you blow right by it? Some folks make jokes about the allergy. I drink and I break out in handcuffs. <laughs> Look, I'm not mad at them. They don't know any better. But why don't they know any better? Because I didn't help them? Because I don't want that to be true. And I don't want it to be true for you either. I want them to understand what these people knew. It says, as lame in our opinion as to its soundness may, of course, mean little. But as ex-problem drinkers, we can say that this explanation makes good sense. So they said it made good sense. The doctor opines later that this physical craving that happens to me, when I put alcohol in my body, I experience a craving beyond my mental control, and I continue to drink even though it would not be a good idea for me to do them. Anyone else have? And, and if it's not drink with you, substitute whatever it is. Okay, so how many of you are drinkers? Because that's a good place to start. Okay, so... When you drank, did you discover that that alcohol energized you? It's a sedative. So people being stimulated by a sedative to a medical person would appear to be a phenomenon. Maybe a manifestation of an allergy. See, it's not a joke. Where's my opiate addicts? Did, were you a little confusing? <laughs> like they'd hit you with enough to knock a horse down and you're out mowing the lawn? <laughs> Where's my meth addicts? That shit calm you down? I've watched people slam that shit and gnaw it out like a junkie. I have. I didn't believe it till I saw it. So you're getting the point, because you got to figure out what it is with you. But whatever it is, if you're having that abnormal reaction, you might want to read further. Okay. So it says, it explains many things for which we could, cannot otherwise account. Then it says, though we work out our solution on the spiritual as well as the altruistic plane, we favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who's very jittery or befogged. What are they talking about? I may need medical help to get separated from it far enough to get clear enough thinking to start actually moving through the process. Yes? All right. More often than not, it's imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he's approached, as he then has a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. Because I can't fully concede to my innermost self based on a lie, which means I have to consciously move into this process and this solution it introduces me to yes the solution's found within me but I've got to move into it consciously right examine it with my senses does it make sense okay so I'm going to jump from there to the next page over I'm not going to get I'm going to start at the XXVIII and I'm going to start where the doctor starts opining about this manifestation of an allergy. First paragraph, we believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. And we just went through to see if, in fact, we might have experienced this manifestation. Does it make sense? Okay. That the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class. What class? The chronic alcoholic. Chronic simply means more than once. Alcoholic means an addictive disorder with the chemical alcohol. Make sense? Okay. So then it says, this never occurs in the average temperate drinker. How many in a never? Zero. So ask yourself, have you ever put... Alcohol, cocaine, methamphetamine, cocaine, heroin, fentanyl. Have you ever put it in your body and then ended up doing more than you set out to do? Okay, that never occurs in the average temperate drinker. So we have not deduced that you're alcoholic or addict, but we have taken temperate off the table. Fair enough? So you're not temperately 
shooting heroin. Like a gentleman. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form. How many of you have tried various forms of spiritual release and found that they often made the problem worse, not better? Some people switch their alcohol problem for a little methamphetamine solution or perhaps an opiate or sedative benzo solution. Doctors treat alcoholism with, as a bit of a shortfall in my benzo, yeah, yeah, Valium deficiency. So, so, so once having formed the habit, any of you feel like you may have formed a habit at some time in your, okay? and found they cannot break it, did you get to a point where you were starting to lose self-confidence that you could stop on your own? At any point. Some of us had it interrupted because we were incarcerated or, right? That didn't necessarily stop it, but it interrupted it. Once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, how many of you had an accountability partner? How many of you ghosted them? I'm just asking. I'm not assuming anything. I've heard all kinds of solutions to protect me from my addiction. Didn't work for the likes of me. Says their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. Has that happened for anyone here? Look at who I'm talking to. All right, so then they talk to us about us if we're still with them. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. How many of you begged you to stop what you were up to? If you loved me, you'd stop. Did you love them? Did you stop? We better read further. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. They're not talking about me impressing you with my scores of scrapes. They're talking about me getting absent of me enough to let the spirit flow through me and touch you and reveal to you who you are and whose you are so that you can move forward in a search for the truth. Does that make sense? And, and they talk to us about that until such an accommodation. The reason we use peers to do it is we know the depths we go. Yes? And then I'm not talking on a physical plane. I'm talking on a spiritual plane. The walking death that is active addiction. Yes? Okay. All right. So in nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. Is your life not grounded in a power greater than yourself in active addiction? Yes. Then why would we ever think that we wouldn't need a power greater than that to pull us out? Does it make sense? And people were baffling because it isn't that we don't want to stop. I can manifest no outward action to show I want to stop. Yep. Okay. So what I like to do, we've sort of roughly took a look, but let's go to Bill's story because... We respond well to stories in recovery. And I'm gonna start at page five in Bill's story, and he starts talking about a, a journey that's familiar to us as we're drinkers, and if you're not drinkers, again, substitute whatever you gotta substitute. He says, liquor ceased to be a luxury, it became a necessity. Any of you remember when you didn't necessarily do it anymore because you wanted to, but because you had to, whatever it was you were doing, okay? He describes it for him, bathtub, gin, two bottles a day, and often three got to be routine. Sometimes a small deal would net a few hundred dollars, and I would pay my bills at the bars and delicatessens. This went on endlessly, and I began to waken very early in the morning, shaking violently. Any of you progressed to a point where, okay, 
He says, a tumbler full of gin followed by a half dozen bottles of beer would be required if I were to eat any breakfast. So he's describing for him when it went from a luxury to a necessity. Nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation. Now think about the thinking. They tell us later in the book, the main problem of the addict centers in the mind. So I think I can solve this problem. Nevertheless, right? I'd net a few dollars, I'd go pay all the people I was on the hook to so I could get on the hook again. But I got this shit. Apparently we struck a nerve. Okay, so I still thought I could control the situation and there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. Gradually things got worse. The house was taken over by the mortgage holder. My mother-in-law died and my wife and father-in-law became ill. So everything is caught up in the sickness. Any of you relate to that in your addiction? Things just started going bad and and there's seemingly nothing that we could do to bring about change. Well, here's what happened for Bill. Then I got a promising business opportunity. You guys ever get an opportunity in the middle of a full-blown run? <laughs> Let's see how it turned out for him, see if you relate. Stocks were at a low point of 1932 and I had somehow formed a group to buy. I was to share generously in the profits. Then I went on a prodigious bender and that chance vanished. Any of you ever get an opportunity and then go to celebrate that opportunity? And so things haven't changed that much since 1932, have they? So here's what he says. I woke up, this had to be stopped. How many of you had something like that happen, got the opportunity, desperately needed the opportunity, blew the opportunity, and now I'm... I got this. Anybody? Okay. I saw that I could not take so much as one drink. I was through forever. How many times have you, maybe not said it outwardly, but thought that inwardly? Before then, I had written lots of sweet promises, but my wife happily observed that this time I meant business, and so I did. Did you bother to tell somebody else about your decision that it wasn't safe to even do one? So now you knew you were serious, right? Because they knew you were serious. Anybody? We, we still with him? Okay. Shortly afterward, I came home drunk. With all that seriousness, did you get out there at some point and think, perhaps I overreacted? Or maybe it wasn't even a conscious thought. How many of you just had someone hand something to you and you just took it reflexively? So here's what he's going to talk about. There had been no fight. Where had been my high resolve? He's asking himself a question. So when you see a question mark in this book, eyesight without insight, spiritual blindness, you're supposed to ask yourself that question. So if you found yourself there, where was my high resolve? I, mean, I was serious about this. I simply didn't know. How many of you could not fathom and had people demanding to know why you did it again and you told them, I don't know. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> so then you'd make up an excuse, right? Anyone do that? They just felt better if I had a reason. Outcome was the same. I didn't know. Okay. So it hadn't even come to mind. Someone had pushed a drink my way and I had taken it. Then the next question, was I crazy? Question mark. How many of you started to wonder if you were? How many of you were pretty sure you were? That wasn't the problem. <laughs> of course I'm crazy. I think what they're trying to get at is that we, we had some vague notion that what was going on with us was not normal, but it was normal for us, so I didn't know what to do different. Okay, so it says, I began to wonder for such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near being just that. So they're defining for you, Bill's defining for you, alcoholic insanity from his position, an appalling lack of perspective. In spite of the evidence that this is not a good idea, I keep doing it again. Make sense? 
And I like to pull your attention the way that they define alcoholic insanity, because if you just go to our room, somebody who's making stuff up will say something like doing the same thing, expecting a different result. And that seems harmless enough, unless you're an addict of the hopeless variety. I did the same thing with no expectation of a different result. Does that make sense? So then I don't fit in the fellowship designed to save me. Because somebody didn't read the book. And they didn't give me the facts. Right? Any of you know what I'm talking about? It, it was an appalling lack of perspective. But it wasn't doing the same thing with the expectation of a different result. This can suck. Watch. Bring your camera. I'm going to burn the place down. Renewing my resolve, I tried again. Some time passed and confidence began to be replaced by cocksureness. What do they mean by that? How many of you could maybe pick up the 24-hour chip but could never quite get to the 30? Maybe you got the 30 but couldn't quite get to the 60. I don't care how far down the thing you go, but after a while what happens is I'm thinking I'm doing it when I've never been able to do it. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking, I got this, and I confuse the experience of grace with the illusion of control, and I drink again. Any of you have that happen to you? So I said, I could laugh at the gin mills. Now I had what it takes. One day, I walked into the cafe to telephone, and in no time, I was beating on the bar asking myself how it had happened. Any of you go get loaded after being clean for some period of time, and then thought, damn, I shouldn't have done that. Then what'd you do? Blew it now, might as well get high, right? Okay. As the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I'd manage better next time, but I might as well get good and drunk then, and I did. He's telling you about the illusion of control. The insanity started before he took the drink. He never had any control. That's why they call it the insanity of the first drink. How many of you thought you got high again in your attempts at recovery and then you thought, well, I chose to drink? I've heard people tell people that. Get up on the roof, jump. On the way down, tell yourself, I choose to hit the ground. <laughs> See if it feels any better to you, egoically. See, the process is already in motion. The outcome's already determined. The only reason I'm thinking I chose is that somehow it makes me feel better, like I'm accountable, but I'm insane. Does it make sense? Oh, it's so important that we get this. I've got a physical malady. When I put it in my body, it's going to respond in me different and cause me to respond different. But I have an obsession that tells me that's not true. And I stay in that cycle forever until I'm redeemed. So then he talks a little bit about it. It says the remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. How many of you have had some clean time? Twist it off again. Go, if you will, to the remorse, horror, and hopelessness. Some of you are doing it. Okay, it is unforgettable, isn't it? Many of you are many years sober. And you can feel it right now, what that feels like, yes? How did I know? Because there's one who has all power, trying to demonstrate to you the spirit. We not only know the highs, but we know the lows. That's why we're uniquely qualified to help. It makes sense? We'll know before our new one what they're feeling. Because we're feeling them in the spirit. The whole plan here is based on that, guys. We know that we know that we know. Don't you think it's weird when you're walking through here and the people that are working here know and they just pull you aside and go, what's up? <laughs> it's not odd. That's God. <laughs> the courage to do battle was not there. My brain raced uncontrollably and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. I hardly dared cross the street lest I collapse and be run down by an early morning truck, for it was scarcely daylight. An all-night place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale. My writhing nerves were stilled at last. 
A morning paper told me that the market had gone to hell again. Well, so had I. Go with him on that. How many of you just, you tore it up again, you had just got some kind of a life back, and you knew from where you found yourself? Did you ever just wake up and just knew I just, it just torched it again? It's all gone. So he's trying to describe that to you. The market had gone to hell again. Well, so had I. Now follow this thought. The market would recover, but I wouldn't. Did you get far enough in your addictive disorder that you figured out if you didn't try again, you couldn't fail again? Some of you are feeling that. Okay. So he says that was a hard thought. Was a hard thought, wasn't it? I felt a lot of you go there. Very hard. Should I kill myself? How many of you contemplated that? How many of you concluded no? Some of you probably tried, and others of you thought, now nah, let's just do death on the installment plan. <laughs> right? Okay. So then a mental fog settled down, gin would fix that. There's death on the installment plan. So two bottles in oblivion. So he says, the mind and body are marvelous mechanisms for mine endured this agony two more years. Sometimes I stole from my wife's slender purse when the morning terror and madness were on me. Again, I swayed dizzily before an open window or the medicine cabinet where there was poison cursing myself for a weakling. How many of you had those encounters? Like a run of maybe I'll take too much medicine or... Come on, my opiate addicts trying to tell me all those overdoses were accidental. Come on. I mean, let's be real. We had hopes, right? All our encounters with law enforcement. Any of you do risky shit with the law enforcement? We just need someone to help us get out, right? There were flights from city to country and back as my wife and I sought escape. Then came the night when the physical and mental torture was so hellish I feared I would burst through my window sash and all. Somehow I managed to drag my mattress to the lower floor lest I suddenly leap. A doctor came with a heavy sedative. Any of you ever have a doc? They probably didn't come to your house anymore, but any of you get, get a little bump of heavy sedative? How'd that turn out? <laughs> Bill said next day found me drinking both gin and sedative. <laughs> Better living through chemistry, right? I wanna, if you guys haven't gone on that journey, if you do switch your alcohol for some kind of opiate, I just want to warn you in advance, while opiates are a great substitute for alcohol, the reverse is not true. Alcohol is a shitty substitute for opiates. I'm thinking more you know that than I'm giving you credit for. <laughs> the combination soon landed me on the rocks. People feared for my sanity. So did I. Did you start to get in agreement with the people that were watching? Did you get to the place where your loved ones had excommunicated you for the most part? Did you have some still hoping every once in a while and clinging to you? Did you get to stay with them long enough to figure out that it wasn't judgment, that it was terror? Our loved ones are fearful that we're going to die in front of them or something. Yes? Okay. So I could eat little or nothing when drinking. I was 40 pounds underweight. My brother-in-law is a physician, and through his kindness and that of my mother, I was placed in a nationally known hospital for the mental and physical rehabilitation of alcoholics. Under the so-called belladonna treatment, my brain cleared. Hydrotherapy and mild exercise helped much. Best of all, I met a kind doctor who explained that though certainly selfish and foolish, I had been seriously ill bodily and mentally. So it's important that you get this story about his encounter with Silkworth because the, Bill Wilson was drinking himself to death in a world that did not embrace alcoholism or addiction as a disorder. The, the diagnosis did not exist. 
So a nationally known hospital, yes, but there weren't very many hospitals anywhere in the world treating that condition. But in New York, they were. They had a preponderance of veterans coming back. So Bill, because of this family connection, was able to get hooked up to one of the very few physicians in the entire world who viewed addictive disorder as a thing. People don't believe in divine appointments, but I like to point out how weird it is that a guy has drunk himself to the streets, gets pointed to the one physician on the planet who actually understands what's up. It relieved me somewhat to learn that in alcoholics, the will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor, though it often remains strong in other respects. Did you have that dis discovery? You couldn't stay out of the jam with the addiction, but in other areas you could do okay? Was it confusing? So he said it was confusing. So now it's explained to him. He says, my incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop was explained. Why am I acting in a way I don't want to act? I know I don't want to act this way. I've told everyone I know I don't want to act this way, but I can't manifest any outward action to stop me from acting this way. Some of you are feeling me when I'm talking about it because we've all felt that way, yes? If we belong here. And those of you who are loved ones of people you've watched go through it, that's how they felt. The same desperation you felt that your loved one was going to die in front of you, we were pretty sure we were. We just didn't know when. Yeah? Okay. Understanding myself now, I fared forth in high hope. How many of you went to a treatment and got an understanding of yourself? How many of you felt confident in that? How many of you ended up spun again? Okay, so he's going to talk about this awareness, right? His first trip, his second trip. and All right, so for three or four months, the goose hung high. I was, went to town regularly and even made a little money. Surely this was the answer, self-knowledge. But it was not, for the frightful day came when I drank once more. The curve of my declining moral and bodily health fell off like a ski jump. See the picture he's painting? How many of you have had some clean time, were serious about the clean time, and whatever happened, you got ripping again, and things didn't get just bad, they got bad quick. Yeah, like a ski jump. Okay. After a time, I returned to the hospital. This was the finish, the curtain, it seemed to me. My weary and despairing wife was informed that it would all end with heart failure during delirium tremens, or I would develop a wet brain perhaps within a year. She would soon have to give me over to the undertaker or the asylum. They did not need to tell me. I knew and almost welcomed the idea. Can you go with them? Because that's when we really know the addictive disorder is a real thing. When we finally, we're in agreement with the doctors. I am dying of this thing. It was a devastating blow to my pride. I, who had thought so well of myself, my abilities, of my capacities to surmount obstacles, was cornered at last. Now I was to plunge into the dark, joining that endless procession of thoughts who'd gone on before. I thought of my poor wife. There had been much happiness after all. What would I not give to make amends? But that was over now. I call to your attention, when you do your step work, you sit down with someone that knows this process, they're going to try and find that moment for you where in the depths of your addiction, you thought about how your behavior was hurting others when you could never see it before. And when that happens, a window opens into our consciousness and new power flows in. And we're suddenly able to start accepting and doing things we weren't able to do before. You see, he thought of his poor wife and he asked himself, what would I not do to make that right? And you blow right by that, but I'll tell you in every one of your story, if you have the addictive disorder, that time when your thought changed just for an instance when God got in. Which is why you'd want to go through the rest of the step process, because now you'll be empowered to do so. Does it make sense? Some of you are feeling that. Who felt that? Yeah, that's happening out there. It's not happening from up here. Okay. So no words can tell the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Did you get yourself to a place you just knew you couldn't do anything about it, but you didn't want to do this to them anymore, and they understand what he's describing, that bitter morass? 
It says, quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. He finally admitted when he knew he didn't want to hurt her anymore that he was beaten. And he's describing it for us. And at the point that I can vocalize it, I've already experienced it. So the, the point that he had conceded that anyone could see had already occurred. Trembling, I stepped from the hospital of a broken man. Fear sobered me for a bit. Then came the insidious insanity of that first drink, and on Armistice Day 1934, I was off again. Everyone seemed resigned to the certainty that I would have to be shut up somewhere or would stumble along to a miserable end. How dark it is before the dawn. In reality, that was the beginning of my last debauch. I was to be catapulted into what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. So he didn't go into a lot of detail describing what he meant by the fourth dimension, but we know what the, the standard dimensions of the world at that time, the fourth dimension is time and space, right? So if you're catapulted into a fourth dimension, there's only here and now. So it starts to make sense. And he starts to describe what it is to live in the here and now rather than in the past or in the future. Any of you spend too much time living in the past and in the future? Okay, so he's describing what that feels like to live in the here and now. He says, I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. So he now is telling you from that hopeless pit of despair, he's now in this manner of living, and he knows happiness, peace, and he, he's leaving a message for the ages so that we have a progressive recovery that counteracts that progressive addiction. Make sense, the trail he's left? Near the end of that bleak November, I sat drinking in my kitchen. With a certain satisfaction, I reflected <clears throat> that there was enough gin concealed about the house to carry me through that night and the next day. Where's my drinkers? Were you guys hiders? Drinkers or hiders? <laughs> my wife was at work. I wondered whether I dared hide a full bottle of gin near the head of our bed. I would need it before daylight. My musing was interrupted by this telephone. The cheery voice of an old school friend asked if he might come over. He was sober. He was sober as an italics. You got to get this guy. How many of you took your addiction out fairly far? Like it was hard, not too many people keeping up with you? Did you always maintain one that was a little worse than you? At least I'm not that bad yet. That's who his old school friend is for him. His, his old school friends, Abby, he's, I'm not that bad yet. So now Abby calls him while he's got liquor hidden all over the house. He's drunk and drinking, wife's out of the house, everything's chill, but dude's sober, that's weird. It was years since I could remember his coming to New York in that condition. What condition? Sober. Abby don't go nowhere sober. You know him? Okay. He says, I was amazed. Rumor had it that he'd been committed for alcoholic insanity. I wondered how he had escaped. That's how impossible it is that this guy's sober. He had to have escaped from the clutches of the court, going to lock him up. Of course, he'd have dinner, and then I could drink openly with him. Unmindful of his welfare, I thought only of recapturing the spirit of other days. There was that time we had chartered an airplane to complete a jag. His coming was an oasis in this dreary desert of futility. The very thing, an oasis. Drinkers are like that. So think about what he's describing. You guys know what an oasis is, yes? It may be a body of water in a very arid place. But rumor has it that it's quite often a mirage. And have you ever run to... Sustenance only to find completely twisted off. So is this a good thing that Ebby's here or not? Is it an oasis or is it a mirage? We don't know. We got to read more. The door opened and he stood there fresh skinned and glowing. This is his drinking buddy. That is a weird way for a man to describe another man. <laughs> Therefore, 
I would say there was something different about that encounter because of the way he describes it for the ages, wouldn't you? How many of you have described your drinking buddy as fresh-skinned and glowing? It's uncommon, so it's called our attention to the experience. It says, there was something about his eyes. He was inexplicably different. How many of you can remember seeing your booking photos or whatever, the death in your eyes? How many of you, after you got lifted up a little bit and had life in your eyes, everyone thought you were a different person? So this kind of thing is happening right before his eyes. So he said, what had happened? But he didn't say it to Ebby. He said it within. I pushed a drink across the table. He refused it. Disappointed but curious, I wondered what had got into the fellow. He wasn't himself. Have you ever been disappointed but curious? How come? How come you're not going to, okay, whatever. More for me. Okay. Come, what's all this about? He finally has to ask. He looked straight at me, simply but smilingly. He said, I've got religion. Now, regardless how any of you in the room believe, whether you're a believer, whether you're atheist or agnostic or whatever you are, you're sitting there drunk and drinking. Your old buddy's sitting there. You ask him, what's up? And he goes, I've got religion. The fun meter goes. (laughs) Right? This is going to suck. So that's what happened, because he has an expectation of what's to come next. But watch what happens next. I was aghast, so that was it. Last summer, an alcoholic crackpot, now, I suspected, a little cracked about religion. He had that starry-eyed look. Yes, the old boy was on fire, all right, but bless his heart, let him rant. Besides, my gin would last longer than his preaching. So now he satisfied himself with, look, I can survive this guy giving me a sermon because I'm going to get plowed. But then another unexpected thing happens. Ebby is not a preacher. Ebby is a restored alcoholic. So he's going to behave differently. He did no ranting. In a matter-of-fact way, he told how two men had appeared in court persuading the judge to suspend his commitment. They had told of a simple religious idea and a practical program of action. That was two months ago, and the result was self-evident. It worked. Ebby came to Bill. Bill answered the door. He knew he was inexplicably different. He asked him why, and on being prodded why, anyone in the spirit is under requirement to tell. So he did. The simple religious, I hear people all the time ducking this issue. The simple religious idea that we carry to the sufferer is that God dwells in you. And we have a manner of living that will prove that fact to you through you. And all you have to do is continue to serve and you will grow in it. That's such a simple message to deliver I encourage all of you to deliver it when you run into people instead of the nonsense we hear in our fellowships sometimes, guys. Because people die because of our fear of how they may perceive. And if God led you to it, he will lead you through it. He, He didn't send you to them to treat hangnails. He sent you to bring them back from the dead. And he's not expecting you to do it. He just wants to use you as his hands and feet to do it. Okay, he had come to pass his experience along to me if I cared to have it. See, he didn't tell him anything other than he came to share the experience that had pulled him out. And the power is in his testimony. I didn't know these cats. They just came to my trial. They were putting me away, dude. They just said, hey, we'll take responsibility for them. No shit, that'll be good. And here he is two months later, the guy that was committed, going to be gone forever to the insane asylum. Now he's walking a free man. He came to New York, didn't take a drink, walked straight to Bill. The only one more hopeless than me is Bill. I got to go get Bill out. (laughs) He says, certainly I was interested. I had to be, for I was hopeless. 
I'm going to end up having to rush you through it, but it says, He talked for hours, childhood memories rose before me. I could almost hear the sound of the preacher's voice as I sat on still Sundays way over there on the hillside. There was that proffered temperance pledge I never signed. My grandfather's good-natured contempt of some church folk and their doings. His insistence that the spheres really had their music, but his denial of the preacher's right to tell him how he must listen. His fearlessness as he spoke of these things just before he died. These recollections welled up from the past and they made me swallow hard. So now he's talking about a move of the spirit within him. He's talking about his grandfather's good-natured tolerance of religious folk, but that he, even on his deathbed, refused to let them tell him about his God. That's what he's talking about. He says, I know my God. He's personal to me. I refuse, even at the point of death, to let you tell me anything about the nature of my God because I am in a relationship with him. And when Bill saw that in his recollection, it caused the spirit within him to move. Have you ever just all of a sudden just tried to choke back an emotional response? You would describe it in writing as it made me swallow hard. The tangible nature of God had made itself known to him. At first he just saw Ebby and saw physical evidence of the presence of God, something about his eyes, the life in him. But now he's starting to have the spirit within him move because of these recollections. And he starts going back to the churchyard before he went to war. So that wartime day in old Winchester Cathedral came back again. He was getting ready to go to war. He was scared. He saw the tombstone of a soldier who had survived war and drank himself to death. He's a soldier who survived war, and now he's drinking himself to death. And that came back to him. That same power that comforted him then is here now. Does that make sense? I'd always believed in a power greater than myself. I had often pondered these things. I was not an atheist. Few people really are, for that means a blind faith in a strange proposition that this universe originated in a cipher and aimlessly rushes nowhere. My intellectual heroes, the chemists, the astronomers, even the evolutionists, suggested vast laws and forces at work. Despite contrary indications, I had little doubt that a mighty purpose and rhythm underlay all. How could there be so much precise and immutable law and no intelligence? So that's the question he asked himself. Not a terribly theological thing, right? Any of you ever questioned that? Well, there seems to be a lot more going on than I'm aware of. I simply had to believe in a spirit of the universe who knew neither time nor limitation. Remember, he was catapulted into a fourth dimension. But that was as far as I had gone. With the ministers and world's religions, I parted right there. When they talked of a God personal to me who was love, superhuman strength, and direction, I became irritated and my mind snapped shut against such a theory. To Christ, I conceded the certainty of a great man not too closely followed by those who claimed him. How many of you have a prejudice toward religious teaching, religious ideas, because of the way you were treated by religious people? that happens to us, but we're talking about relationship with tangible power, not religion. Does that make sense? Okay. His moral teaching most excellent. For myself, I had adopted those parts which seemed convenient and not too difficult. The rest I disregarded. I want to jump from there really quick. At the bottom of that page, he said, had this power originated in him? Obviously it had not. There'd been no more power in him than there was in me at that minute, and this was none at all. So he's looking at Ebby, he sees the miracle of Ebby across the table from him, and he knows that Ebby's gained access to power, but it's not of him. But Bill's starting to feel this, and he says, that floored me. It began to look as though religious people were right after all. Here was something at work in the human heart which had done the impossible. My ideas about miracles were drastically revised right then. Never mind the musty past. Here sat a miracle directly across the kitchen table. He shouted great tidings. I saw that my friend was much more than inwardly reorganized. He was on a different footing. His roots grasp a new soil. How many of you had the encounter with somebody who you knew had an addictive disorder similar to your own? 
and you see them restored and it gave you hope that you too could be restored. Well, then we're not going to go any further because that is the essence and the, the process is laid out. Next week, we'll look at two. We'll look at that encounter. But hopefully you understand that this power that's bringing you here, the one that thought about you while you're in prison and built this place for you to come home to, that power had been leading you here because we need warriors to walk out from here and lead the next 10